Hi everyone and welcome to Pod Academy. Okay, so here's the thing. When we're talking about developing countries, uh, the third world or the global poor or whatever the current label is, there's obviously a lot of impassioned debate about what should be done and by who and who is doing what to whom and who is to blame. And in the, in the midst of all this chattering, there are horrific statistics of deaths and, and consequences each year from poverty-related causes. I'm not even going to bother to give you the numbers. I mean, they are so huge that they just they cease to mean anything anymore. Which is why I chose to talk to the author of this new book, The Global Development Crisis. Not because he professes to have the answer to this problem, but because his ideas are interesting and not usually considered within the normal mainstream debate. His book addresses one of the most critical paradoxes of our time, the simultaneous presence of wealth on an unprecedented scale and massive, massive amounts of poverty. And so it's my pleasure to talk today to Dr. Benjamin Selwyn, a senior lecturer in international relations at the University of Sussex and the author of the book, The Global Development Crisis. Dr. Benjamin Selwyn, thank you very much for talking to me today. Thank you, Craig. Ben, my, my first question is actually about the poverty line. And this is a phrase that we hear all of the time. But what actually or what technically is the poverty line? Well, at the moment, the poverty line is $1.25 a day purchasing power parity. And this uh, $1.25 a day is supposed to reflect the, the cost of purchasing a basket of goods that originally cost $1 a day in the mid-1980s in the uh, United States. And that was deemed to be the poverty line in the United States. So around $1 a day in the mid-1980s in the United States was deemed to be the uh, income level at which people um, below that, which would be living, they would be living in extreme poverty. Uh, that's the international poverty line. It's been updated because of inflation to one dollar twenty-five a day. Um, since the nineteen eighties, it's been since the nineteen eighties, and so of course I can tell in your voice that you're surprised, and uh, everyone is surprised when they come across these figures because they just think instinctively, and they are right to think so, that this one dollar twenty-five a day is way too low, and it is. Is there a lot of pressure to try and change this, or is there a recommended poverty line which is more reflective of, of what people need to live off? Yes, I mean, it's very interesting. The One of the founders of this $1 a day, which has now been upgraded to $1.25 a day, is Martin Ravallion, who works for the World Bank. And he admits himself, he says, we were extremely conservative in setting this $1 a day line. In other words, there is a tacit admission within what he's saying that he thinks the poverty line should have been higher. And there are many other organizations that think the poverty line should be higher. There's an idea about the ethical poverty line, which is around $3 a day. The New Economics Foundation in London talks about a $5 a day poverty line. The uh, World Bank economist, Lant Pritchett, uh, and you think he's World Bank, so he, he he must be going along with the $1.25 argument. He's not at all. He is saying that poverty line should be $10 a day. Um, so there's a, a wide variety of uh, approaches to the poverty line, and the World Bank's poverty line is the lowest one. 
which yields the best results. Okay, and then that's the reason, because it, it, it looks the best in terms of saying that there's less people living in poverty? or Yes, uh, if, you, if you have a low poverty line, then there are less people living under that poverty line. If you have a high poverty line, there are more people living under that poverty line. I would say that the World Bank's poverty line is way too low and is designed that way to show that their economic medicine, which is about neoliberalism, has been working when it hasn't. So it's ideologically driven and it's incorrect, and it's in fact murderous, because it justifies uh, millions and billions of people living in barbaric and extremely poor conditions, whilst the World Bank can talk about them living above the poverty line, which is simply not true. The World Food Programme uh, itself notes that there is an abundance of food, in their words, and that there is clearly enough food to feed the mm -hmm. entire global population. What is getting in the way of that? What's getting in the way of that is the fact that people are poor, uh, that you have billions of people around the world who simply do not have the money to buy the plentiful food that exists. Uh, that is the key problem. It's not about the technology that's used to produce it. It's not about the quantity of food. It's not even about distribution of food because there's huge amounts of food being produced in poor countries. It's the fact that you have billions of people living in very poor conditions and they have not got the purchasing, they have not got the ability to actually buy the food. And then why aren't we lowering the price of the, this sounds like the most obvious question in the world but yeah, why course. aren't we just lowering the, the the cost of the food so that they can then afford it well uh, if you think about it the transnational corporations who control the global food industry um they are locked into competition with each other but uh, the last thing that they want to do is give away their food for free they want to achieve the highest prices on their food and if they can make a sufficient profit there is uh, which they are making there is no incentive for them to push the price of food down and cut into their profits so it's the profits of the food corporations that is really uh, disabling uh, poor people getting hold of food and it's uh, there's much more to it than that i mean you got many poor countries uh, and they are producing food for export for consumption in rich countries. And so what you have was a shift from basic food crops to luxury export crops. And so basic food crops actually become more expensive because there's less of them being produced. And the uh, luxury food crops are being exported for foreign exchange, which goes into the hands of the owners of capital and the owners of land, but not the actual uh, people who need the food, the workers and the uh, peasants. Let me ask you about a, a comment that was made a long time ago now, but that still seems to be quite a strong, often used argument. It was made by the economist Paul Krugman, mm -hmm. uh, and he argued that sweatshops move hundreds of millions of people from abject poverty to something still awful, but nonetheless significantly better. I mean, Jeffrey Sachs is saying the same thing. Uh, he's saying that the sweatshops are the first rung out of extreme poverty. Um, but when you look at these processes, you see that poverty is being reproduced in new ways. Uh, while a huge amount of wealth is being generated by the work of these workers in sweatshops, they still remain poor. In the mainstream way we think about development, it's often seen as you have pre-industrial agrarian societies, then you have sweatshops and then you have better conditions and so on. That's one way of looking at it. But another way of looking at it would be to say, uh, what about the wealth that's been created by these workers in sweatshops? If this wealth was being put under some kind of democratic control by these workers, then their level of poverty could be reduced significantly, uh, immediately. When you say so it's, democratic yeah. control, you mean that they have the choice to 
choose where that money goes and are spent that is made? Yes. I mean, basically, it's about uh, determining what is done with the wealth that they produce. At the moment, that wealth goes into the hands of the exporters and the transnational corporation and the big uh, TNCs here, like Gap and Nike and so on. It goes into the, the uh, CEO's pockets and into the shareholders' pockets. Uh, but it's based on the work of the workers in the sweatshops. So the question is, that is fundamental, or should be fundamental, but is never asked in the mainstream development discourses, why don't these workers have the right to decide upon how that wealth is distributed and what's done with it and how it's invested? But doesn't that question go, go against the entire structure of the system? Uh, in some ways it does. But funny enough, uh, it's when these kinds of questions are raised that we see much more positive development outcomes taking place. Um, if you look at the, I mean, the highest form of development we can look at historically, uh, for many people at least, has been the establishment of the welfare state in Europe. Uh, really pulled many millions of people out of poverty. If you look at Europe, it, Europe did not get richer between 1939 and 1945. In fact, it was devastated by war, became much poorer. And yet, after 1945, the population of Europe was far better off than in the 1920s and 1930s because of the establishment of the welfare state. And how is that welfare state established? Well, uh, one of the people I quote is Quintin Hogg, who became Lord Hailsham, is a Tory MP. And he says, either we give them, the people, social reform, or they will give us, the elites, social revolution. It's when the uh, fundamental nature of the system is called into question that you actually do get very progressive social change. And that's what is needed. Development as a discourse should be about provoking that kind of fundamental change. But as at the moment, it's a very conservative discourse, which actually precludes that social change. That's why it's a problem. But do, do you think that the nature of the system is, is now uh, being called into question? I mean, that there are stirrings of revolt. For example, in the, the Arab Spring that began in Tunisia and, and spread throughout the Middle East. Mm -hmm. oh, well, I mean, uh, initially in the uh, beginnings of the Arab Spring, I and many others were very hopeful that this would be the beginning. But of course, if you understand that uh, these kinds of developments are going to be opposed by very powerful forces that are fundamentally opposed to this kind of uh, development, then you understand why um, it can be beaten back. It's not surprising. Under a capitalist system, uh, there is very little space for labouring classes to assert their right and their ability to achieve development on their own uh, terms. Uh, but that is a continual struggle. So most of the time, uh, we're going to see losses, but we are going to see victories and things can change quite fast. If you look at Latin America in the 2000s, a lot of very progressive things took place there. If you look at China at the moment, you've had a huge rise in uh, struggles by workers in firms uh, leading to better conditions and better wages. So there is lots of disappointing examples and cases, but there are also hopeful ones. Then perhaps, could you go into some more detail about uh, an, a hopeful example, a hopeful case of a country that you think has been able to take more control over their own development? Sure. I mean, there are lots of examples. Uh, one of the examples I use quite a lot is that of the landless laborers movement in Brazil, the Movimento dos Trabalhadores Sem Terra. Uh, this is a movement that was created in the 1980s uh, from 
laborers had been forced off the land uh, during the huge conservative modernization period in Brazil under the military from the mid-1960s onwards. What happened there was he had an intensification of the technology on being used on land. That displaced labor. Workers were pushed off the land and pushed into the expanding favelas uh, where many of them remain and their children remain. So the MST, the Landless Laborers Movement, uh, started up as a reaction to this and they started taking back the land. They started uh, taking over land, uh, having uh, land invasions, uh, taking over land that's not being used or not being used productively and they set themselves up as uh, collectivities uh, producing on the land. And since the mid-1980s, they have... Uh, settled around 350,000 families, that's uh, more than a million people, on the land through their own actions. Uh, and this has been against intense opposition from the media, uh, the state, uh, backed up by military and police, um, by landlords who often employ armed gangs to uh, push the MST off the land. Despite all of that opposition, and without being armed, and without using any violence, they've been able to uh, occupy land and settle the land. So this is a brilliant example, I think, of the poor carrying out development and achieving development by their own means, rather than relying on elites to do it for them. Of course, once you get into it, it's more complicated. There are links with elites and with the state and so on. But uh, essentially, this is an example of development from the bottom up under the current system according to the 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 un website itself the things seem to be getting better i mean they quote that since 1990 extreme poverty has been cut in half there's been large reductions to child mortality rates 2.1 billion people have gained access to clean drinking water things seem to be getting better under the current system well, first of all, if you take into account the idea of the poverty line being set too low, if you raise the poverty line to a humane and uh, socially acceptable level, say 5 or $10 a day, uh, these pictures will look very different. Uh, that's one point. Secondly, what the UN website and what all of the mainstream development uh, organizations and actors fail to do is to say what could happen if the wealth that is increasingly generated in the world, which is expanding all the time, what would happen if that was placed under some kind of democratic control? Uh, and what, what, or to put it a different way, in slightly more eco economic terms, what are the opportunity costs of hum the human development opportunity costs of the huge amounts of wealth being stored up and held by the one percent, the tiny minority. Well, if you look at it that way, then you see that actually the very, very slow process of um, increasing income across the world that is seen as uh, relieving poverty is, um, is one way of thinking about development. But there are other ways that would relieve poverty much more quickly. And the way we are thinking about it now actually just reproduces it, although we don't think of it as poverty because we have this really low poverty line. What was happening in these poor countries a few hundred years ago? I mean, were they all just dying and poor and just waiting for the global north to industrialize so that they could start receiving aid? Not at all. Um, if you if you think about the, the again, this is a this is a brilliant question, and this is where the standard development discourse again turns a blind eye. I mean, the origins of capitalism are basically the origins of a system which is based on plunder, uh, a dispossession, uh, slavery, forcing of uh, the native population in, in 
Latin America to go down uh, mines, the huge dispossession of the land in Europe, and so on. Uh, this was the emergence of capitalism, and this was an extremely violent process. Before that process, things were not wasn't as if people were living in paradise, but there were systems in the economies where people could actually work for a much shorter period of the day than people work now and still have the basic food uh, and shelter necessary for them. So capitalism, the emergence of capitalism is a two-sided process. On one hand, it's very progressive because it generated this productivity drive, which everyone knows about, uh, creation of wealth, which everyone knows about. On the other hand, it did so based on the dispossession and enslavement of millions and the uh, despoilation of continents and the creation of a uh, global laboring class, which is generally poor. And for me, uh, an alternative form of development would be really trying to limit the destructive aspects of capitalism and uh, bring out the creative ones. But that would be also challenging the nature of capitalism to some extent as well. The current world, it generates more and more wealth every day. But that wealth is also is based on poverty the poverty of billions of the world's laboring class. A different world could be one where the wealth that's being uh, generated would be based on the wealth of laboring classes. It'd be a very different type of wealth. It wouldn't be wealth just in terms of uh, material wealth, in terms of money, but it'd be about wealth in terms of free time uh, and so on, and ability to interact and democratically participate in society. What is your view on patent protection of drugs and medicine and access to the developing world? Well, again, if you look at in the uh, 1990s and early 2000s, there was these big struggles by countries like South Africa and Brazil. In the midst of AIDS crises, these countries needed uh, antiretroviral drugs, and big firms which produced them were uh, loath to provide them to these countries at a cheap price. And they were certainly not happy about these countries using generic drugs, which were produced by their own firms. And there was a huge legal battle. And uh, thankfully, these countries, Brazil and South Africa, won and were able to produce their own generic drugs. So what does that story tell us? That the big drug manufacturers across the world are not actually interested in the health of the populations of the poor world, or poor people more generally, but they are interested in their profits first and foremost. And that is one of the key contradictions of capitalism. I mean, you have this amazing technology, you have this amazing ability, the capacity to really enhance human lives, but that is contained within a patent or property right. And if you don't have the money, you cannot get hold of those technologies or uh, capacities. And that is the real problem. Is there argument that they actually, they need the money? That the drugs cost so much money to create sure. and that they need this money from the from, from everyone, from, from people that can afford it and people that can't afford it. Well, yeah, I mean, you, uh, it'd be very strange if you got <coughs> representatives of drugs companies saying, we don't need the money, we're not interested in profit, have them for free. But of course, they want the money and so they say they need the money, but um, they spend more on advertising than they do on R&D, research and development. So they've got the money already. It's a question of a more equitable sharing of that wealth and that technology and knowledge. And finally, what is your outlook at the moment? I mean, are you positive or negative about the situation we, we currently find ourselves in? Well, I mean, the um, the indignados in Spain were quite successful and they created the new political party, uh, Podemos, I think, which I think means we can. And um, they got something like 9% of the vote in the European elections. So um, there's... There are things to be 
to be optimistic about, actually. Um, they're usually quite small. <laughs> there's, they're, they're, you know, there's always more room to be pessimistic than there is to be optimistic, and that pessimism drives out the optimism and makes you compromise and makes you accept the mainstream discourse, uh, which is why pessimism is so much a basis of the mainstream discourse. So that's why you have to work really hard to be uh, optimistic. Dr. Benjamin Selwyn, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you, Craig. Dr. Benjamin Selwyn is a senior lecturer in international relations at the University of Sussex and the author of the new book, The Global Development Crisis. My name's Craig Barfoot. Thanks for listening.